I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Gospel of Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. And when you uh, get that Bible, turn it to Mark chapter 3. All right. So as you turn there, um, we finally made it to chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel. It's taken us a while. We started this back in August. Um, But before we get into it, I want to take you back on a tour through what we've already seen. A tour of where we've already been. And so to do that, you actually need to flip back a couple chapters to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Jesus makes a very important statement that characterizes his entire ministry. You find it right there in chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says this. He says, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. The key word there is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's invading from heaven to earth. Okay. But here's what you need to understand. The invasion of God's kingdom is not like a contemporary example, like the invasion of the Russians into Ukraine. It's not like that. God's kingdom does not come to kill, but to heal. And God's kingdom comes to the needy and to the outcast, not to the elite and the self-righteous. That's a very important distinction to make. And we've seen that through these passages. Take a look uh, in chapter 1. In fact, let's bring this to the screen. We can bring that first list to the screen. These are the kinds of people that Jesus goes to first in the Gospel of Mark. It's the needy, it's the outcast, it's the lonely, it's the suffering. You see the demon-possessed, the disease, the leper, so on and so forth. Let me just take you back to these. The first one, uh, look at verse 25 in chapter 1. Jesus goes to the demon-possessed person. Verse 25 says this, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Quite a moment, right? The next you see is Jesus goes to the diseased person. Pick up in verse 32. It's quite a night that they had as the disciples. It says this, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Verse 34, and Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out demons And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Go forward a few passages. Go to verse 40. This is one of my favorites. This is when he heals the leper. Remember this about the leper. They they had a contagious disease, right? Contact uh, risked you catching that leprosy. And so the leper was the loneliest person in Jesus' society. They were outcasts to the outskirts of town. They couldn't work. They couldn't see their family. They couldn't marry. They lived a miserable life, and no one would touch them. In fact, this is how it worked for the leper. The leper did come into close contact with people. If they didn't walk through, say, the main path through downtown, they would have to yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. So it was a warning so that everyone would run away in fear of making contact and catching leprosy. So you just imagine mothers grabbing their children and running away. Old men and old women running away from this person, yelling out, unclean, unclean. Everyone runs, but not Jesus. Verse 40. 
And a leper came to Jesus imploring him and kneeling, saying to him, if you will, you can make me clean. It says here, Jesus moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. The next person you see Jesus going to is the paralytic. Well, actually, this person was brought to them in that dramatic story where they rip open the roof, right? Imagine if that was your house and they let down this man who's possibly never walked before right in front of Jesus. Pick up in chapter two, verse 11. Jesus looks at me, he says this, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. And immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Last example I want to show you is the tax collectors and sinners. Pick up in verse 15. Jesus caught a lot of flack for this. It says, and Jesus reclined a table in his house. That's Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Let's stop there. Here's something we have to understand about Jesus through all these stories. Jesus did not care all that much about PR. He didn't care about it. He did what he did. And because of that, he's breaking all the rules and regulations. And here's what happens. He built a very bad reputation with the authorities of his day. A very bad reputation. Take a look at this next list on the screen. He was called a blasphemer in uh, chapter 2, verse 7. He was called a colleague of sinners. He was called an apostate from religious customs when he said, my disciples don't need to fast. He was then called a Sabbath breaker. Those, those, the, the top one and the bottom one are a really big deal in Jewish society. When you're called that, I mean, you are really excommunicated from the faith, the faith family of the Jewish people. A very, very big deal to be called these things, but he didn't care. You see, Jesus, he heals, he forgives sins, he challenges legalism, he eats with sinners, he ignores all the rules and regulations. But, but here's another thing we understand about that culture. This is really important. It goes like this. In ancient Israel, the handicapped and the diseased were unfortunately deemed by the people as unclean. And so what happens is these people that are suffering who were forced into a very lonely life on the fringes of normal society. And to top that, they were often excluded from work and from worship. Excluded. But not so with Jesus. What we see in these first two chapters is that Jesus not only welcomes these people, he goes to them. He seeks them out. He's going totally countercultural from what all of his neighbors and mentors and all of these deep, different people said was deemed right and appropriate. And Jesus does not ask the afflicted outsider that he meets, that he seeks out. He doesn't ask them to first repent or to perform a cleansing ritual. He doesn't do that. Rather, Jesus simply welcomes them and cures them. Because that's who he is. And that's how God's benevolent kingdom works. And we see all that just in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark. 
But today, there's a plot twist. Today, it takes a turn. Here's what happens. All of this activity gets Jesus into some pretty major trouble. And the local authorities go around. Uh, they go around at Jesus. And, and this, this is how it works. At first, they're concerned with him. Then they start to question him. And then they want to kill him. So concerned, questioning, and then plotting to kill him. If we could bring that next list to the screen, it goes like this. In chapter 2, it begins with silent accusation. You see that right there when he's about to heal the paralytic. He just said, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, chapter 2, it says this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. So not out loud. Why does this man speak like that? He is, a, he, is a bla- he is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It goes from silent accusation and intensifies to questioning. Later in the chapter, they begin to question him. Why don't your disciples fast? Why do your disciples break the Sabbath? And then it ends in chapter 3 with a plot against his life. So concerned with him, questioning him, and now wanting to kill him. All this brings us to chapter 3. Okay, So now you have a, a, a bit of a real-life portrait of what Jesus was doing, of what Jesus believed, and of what Jesus was up against. And before we get into this passage, I'm going to give you another treat and let you watch a movie just like when you're in class in high school. Like today's a movie day and you don't have to take notes. It's like, yes, great. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so I want to start by showing you this film again. This is The Chosen. I'm sure many of you have seen this. And again, I just want to give a little caveat. It's an artistic display of this passage. So there's a few notes that are missing. One of them I think they miss is the anger that Jesus had that you're going to see in the verse. Um, And they rearrange the events a little bit. But I still think it's a really good starting place. And then we'll get into it and, and study it verse by verse. So let's bring the lights down and let's go ahead and watch this clip together. No, Amana or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and with what? Excuse me, what are you doing? Ilam. Your friend Ilam has a withered hand. Are you here? It is not lawful to heal on Sabbath. Which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it up? Are you to speak to our congregation in such a way? How much more valuable is this man than a shot this at once? Come here. Come stand here. It's okay. Hey, don't sit down. We don't know this person. You could be a shot. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life? This affliction does not threaten his life. It does not even affect his health.
interesting point. Checked out. Gladly. So, quite a moment in the life of Jesus. Did you see the disciples when he started being healed? They were like, yeah, that's our guy. I like that part. So we'll start there. But let's pick up in the verse. Okay, I want to go through this, and I want to bring this even more to life. Um, maybe even more than the film did. So pick up in verse 1, chapter 2. It reads this. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Pause there. So get the scene. It's a synagogue. It's a house of worship, somewhat similar to this. The place is full of people. And there's a man there in the service with a disabled hand. And what you have in verse 2 is you have these religious leaders who are conspiring, who are colluding, right? And it says they're basically lurking in the shadows of the synagogue. And verse 2 says that they watched Jesus so that they might accuse him. So you have these rabbis and these Pharisees, these Sadducees, all these religious leaders and political leaders who are waiting to catch him in a moment when he breaks the law, the Sabbath in this case. And so Jesus knows this. He walks in. He's aware of who's there, right? And the question is, well, what does Jesus do? He doesn't have to heal the man and provoke the situation, right? He sees the man there with the withered hand, the disabled hand, but he doesn't have to heal him. He knows that the authorities are there. He knows what they're up to. And so he doesn't have to create conflict and controversy if he doesn't want to. And we might ask, why poke the nest? Why do this? Well, let's go to verse 3. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Come here. So stop there. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to look down, come back, look down, come back. So verse 3, it says, he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. So does Jesus remain quiet and avoid the conflict? No, not at all. He runs to it. He provokes it. And not only that, Jesus is interrupting the worship service in this moment, right? The rabbis likely were reading from the scrolls and preaching. That's what they did then, like we do now. And Jesus interrupts the service, goes to the center of the synagogue and says, You, come here, come here. So interrupts the whole thing. He calls him to stand up and to come to him. And you can imagine what this man might have felt like, right? When Jesus calls him out, interrupts the service and says, come here. This is how I would have thought. I would have said, oh, no. (laughs) Is he talking to me? Is he calling me? Right? I don't want to upset my rabbis. I don't want to upset the service. I don't even know this man. But he's calling me to come here. And it's possible That he probably didn't want to go along with it. This prophet he didn't know. He didn't want to upset the service. And it's possible had he known that his handicap would have been put on public display that day. That he might have missed synagogue altogether and not shown up. You can imagine what he might be going through. What the passage tells us is that he did stand up. He stood up and he quietly went to the center of the synagogue. 
where Jesus stood and where everyone was now staring. And so what is Jesus about to do? Take a look at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, so this is to everyone, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So he asked a question. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, we just did a little bit of a tour. What you see is that Jesus was the one being questioned left and right. He was the one getting hit with all the questions. But now here, Jesus is doing the questioning, right? And what you find is that these religious leaders, he's talking about the Sabbath. These religious leaders, they had taken the Sabbath, this holy day that God made from the beginning of time, and they piled onto it all of these rules and regulations. In Jesus' day, it was an oral tradition that every child learned. And later it became written down. It's called the Mishnah, just a couple centuries later. But it's all these rules and regulations, and they're piled on, and they're missing God's original intent for the Sabbath, so much so that in Jesus' day, the Sabbath became more of a burden than it was a real gift to the people. And so Jesus boldly calls them out with a question in verse 4. He knows they're there. He's provoking the nest. And he's saying this. Is it lawful? You've questioned me. It's now my turn. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? To save life or to kill it? And so what do they say in return? How do they answer? At this point, I believe you can cut a knife through the tension that's in that service. It's been interrupted. It's been provoked. He's questioning the leaders, right? Everyone, I think, must have been tense in their chairs. And take a look at what happens. Verse 4, he asks the question and says, but they were silent. And Jesus looked around at them with anger. Don't miss that. I don't think they got that right in the film. It says he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So they wouldn't answer him. Jesus always answered their questions. You see in chapters one and two. But he got nothing but silence in return from them. And I think it must have been a deafening and uncomfortable silence that filled the synagogue, made it a bit awkward and tense. And you can just see here in the verse, Jesus scanning the room, waiting for an answer, furious with anger. In fact, here, Mark uses three really strong Greek words to convey how furious Jesus is that don't appear anywhere else in Mark's gospel. I mean, he's trying to make the point that he was very, very angry. Remember where Mark's gospel came from. Peter. Peter was the eyewitness and Mark was the scribe that wrote it down. And so Peter recalls on that day. Oh, yes, I remember. I saw his eyes. He scanned the room and he was angry that they were cowards and did not answer Jesus's question. So Jesus is stewing in, in the silence. Of them not answering. And so what does Jesus do? Pick up on verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. He goes there. Right? Stretch out your hand. Now, again, pause. Think of it. This man, they gave the name Elon. We don't really have a name. 
right? So he's standing there. Jesus is there. He tells him to stretch out his hand. I think this man must have probably been nervous with the whole congregation staring at him. And the reality is he didn't have to stretch out his hand. He could have collapsed under the pressure and he could have ran out of the synagogue. And if I was there, again, just thinking about this passage this week, if I was there at this point, I'm probably standing on a chair to see what is this man going to do? Is he going to stretch out his hand? And if he does, what's going to happen? Right? This prophet has just thrown this whole service into chaos. And so is he going to do it? Is he going to stretch out his hand? Or is he going to run? Pick back up in verse 5. Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And you saw it in the film. And I think the way they depicted that is, I suppose, how it went. Miraculous. If I'm there, my mouth is now on the floor, right? He just healed my friend Elam's hand. And this man, his hand is just transformed right before all of their eyes. And again, if I'm there, I'm like, this is the best synagogue service I've ever been to. Like, I'm, I'm glad I brought Jim, my unbelieving neighbor, with me this week. Like, wow. It's usually not like this. They don't really preach this well, you know. I mean, I'm glad I'm there. Just you got to get into the scene. If you don't read the Bible that way, then you're not going to love the Bible. But if you read it like it really is, it's a story. Let it play out. You really come into the text. And so at this point, everyone's floored. They can't believe their eyes, right? But the passage tells us not everyone. Not everyone was floored. Not everyone liked this. Look how the passage ends, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus. How to destroy him. So they are angry. Imagine the ministers in these big robes that they would have worn back then. In the middle of the service, they just run out in a fury. There's no final prayer. There's no benediction. They're just mad and they run out in the synagogue over, right? And the verse says they immediately held a meeting with the Herodians. That's the political leaders of the day. They actually weren't friends. The, 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 um, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along. So the very fact that they're coming together is because they all hate Jesus. And they're conspiring on how they can kill him, how they can eliminate this threat. And so I come back to another question. What does Jesus do? Now there's a warrant on his life. They want to kill him. So what does he do? Pick up verse 7. Story goes on. And we'll read for a little while here. It says, Jesus, what he did next is he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edom and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Watch this. And Jesus told his disciples to save a boat, to have a boat ready for him because of the, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. So get this scene in your head. What was it? Verse 10, right? Imagine this horde of suffering, diseased people with all kinds of ailments coming around him to the point where Jesus is afraid he's going to be crushed 
by the weight of them. Right? We just, just get that in your mind. Jesus walking towards the sea and hordes, I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands of those who have diseases that can't be cured. There wasn't hospitals and medicine like there is today. Now, thankfully, there wasn't the healthcare insurance debacle we have, but there wasn't like, you know, easy medical help back then. And so there was a healing prophet. You went there. Your mother has an issue. Your cousin, you got them there. And says there were so many pressing in on him to be healed that he was afraid he'd be killed, crushed by the weight of the crowd. So it's quite a sight. And then to top it off, verse 11, what you have here is these demon-possessed people that when they come close to Jesus, they're flailing to the ground, bowing down before him, and they're crying out, you are the son of God. I mean, that's quite a Tuesday, you know? I mean, that's, that's, you don't go home and unsee that. You've seen it, you ain't gonna unsee it. I mean, that's a really dramatic moment. But the story goes on. Verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, James the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So what's Jesus doing? He's getting the band of brothers together. And it says after this that he headed home. Verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. It's a really big crowd that you can't even eat. So he heads home. Well-deserved rest for the Messiah, right? I mean, we've read what he's done. The whole city at one point gathered at his door and he healed all of them, right? So he heads home. And these next two verses are where I want to end. In these next two verses, there is a serious twist in the plot. Let's take a look at it. So verse 20, then Jesus went home. And it says that the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. End of the verse. Did you catch that? Some preachers don't like preaching on that one. I like it. I think it's true. It says his family, don't miss it, they thought he was crazy. Now Jesus, right, you have Mary and Joseph. It's likely that Mary was not in on that. Most scholars think Joseph had already passed away. And most scholars will tell you that Jesus had both brothers and sisters. He probably had a big family because big families is what you had in that time period. And so the scene here is the siblings think he's going crazy. That he's out of his mind to be doing all of these things and claiming that he's the Messiah. And so it says they went to heal him. So think about everything we've covered, right? Three, three, three main things I want to draw your attention to. The religious rulers want to kill him. His family wants to seize him. They think he's mad. But the demons, in verse 11, are falling down before Jesus and crying out, You are the Son of God. There's three different responses here. Very, very different. The leaders think he's a threat. 
His family thinks he's a threat to himself, but the fallen angels know that he is the son of God. Let me say it another way. The religious plan to execute him, the family plans to institutionalize him, but the demons fall down before him. And so we come to the end of these stories and we have to ask this question, which is it? Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? These are the three only responses that the great writer C.S. Lewis brought up uh, last century. Liar, lunatic, or Lord? And you see all three of them play out right here in this passage. And this really has been the debate of history. Which is he? Time magazine named Jesus the most influential person that's ever lived. And you don't need Time magazine to say that, but that's helpful, right? Most influential person that ever existed is Jesus of Nazareth, who we believe to be the Son of God. But this has been the debate of history. Who is this strange man that walks through the pages of history that claims to be who he says he is? Who is he? Which is he? Men and women throughout every century since his birth have had to make that very decision. Was Jesus a liar? Was he claiming to be someone he's not? That when they question him, the authorities, they were right to question him because he was lying. They were right because he was the greatest con man that ever lived. Was he a liar? Was Jesus a lunatic? Was he delusional about who he was? I, I love that interview with Bono. We've showed it before Bono on YouTube. He, he says, look, Bono kind of goes off the same threefold response. He says, he says, you know, it's not that he was just a teacher or a prophet. He claimed to be the son of God. And he was like really into himself. He had serious rock star uh, mentality. Like he, he was all about him. About who he claimed to be. So it's not he was just a great teacher. It's either, either he was Lord or, or he was nuts. He was so self-indulgent. He was a lunatic. He was deluded. He was the greatest madman mad that ever lived. So liar, lunatic. The only other option is, was Jesus truly Lord? Is he Lord? Was Jesus telling the truth and is in fact the son of God? Every person that is born, I don't know the statistics, but there's so many children born across the world today, right? Anyone's birthday in here, just so we know? So who knows how many children are born today? Every person that is born into this world has to decide which he is. Most influential person in history, doesn't matter where you live on the planet. Some still don't, they're called unreached people groups, but many are. They've heard of Jesus and they need to hear more. But everyone that's ever born in this world has to decide which he is. Every person is confronted with the claims of Jesus and has to make a judgment call. Philippians 2 says it this way. Let me just read it to you. It reads this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, it says. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, friends, one day, in the end of history, all will know the truth of Christ. It says all will bow and confess in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. What we need to do today, I believe, is thank God that we already do. Thank God that he's already opened our eyes to Christ. Thank God that you were born into the family you were born to, or that you went to the school that you went to, or that you met the friend that witnessed to you that you met one day. Thank God that at some point your story led to the person and the claims of Jesus. And thank God that by his grace, it's not because you're smart or spiritual, but by his grace, he opened your eyes. He humbled you and made you open. Jesus says you have to become a child, radically open. You don't have all the answers. But he gave you the grace to be like a child, to see him as he is and say, yes, I believe that you're telling the truth, Jesus. You are Lord. This morning, I want you to thank God for the relationship that you have to Jesus Christ. It's the most important relationship that you will ever have. And so we thank God for it this morning. Amen.